Father, God, thank you for this opportunity to come before you and worship and bow at your feet. God, we love you and we know you're in this place. God, just watch over uh, everybody in this room right now uh, that your presence be felt uh, and that you be with uh, Pastor Raymond here and uh, these testimonies that we're going to hear, God. In Jesus' name I pray. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Ann O'Dell, and I've been a part of this church for the last 20 years. One of the many things I like about Westgate is their love for missions and their generosity in supporting missions through the years. When Raymond made the announcement that we had this orphanage in Uganda, to support children there in this orphanage, I was elated. You see, I have a grandniece, Caroline, who has been serving in Uganda as a missionary with the International Mission Board. Her mission and ministry has been to um, Sudanese refugees who have fled their country due to intense persecution and the wars that they've experienced. One of the things that Caroline has done is to uh, teach these women, to help them to support their families. She started a bake shop, and she's also started a, uh, taught them how to make soap package it to sale. And as they gather in her home to learn how to do these things, she shares the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Caroline has uh, been very adept at languages, and she's learned to speak Arabic so she can share with them in this language. These women seem to enjoy hearing stories about women that the Lord has made a difference in their lives. This gives them encouragement and hope for their own lives. Caroline has been living in the rural area of Uganda, 
but recently she moved to the uh, capital city, Kampala, and Raymond tells me that this orphanage that we're going to help is in that vicinity. Caroline doesn't know about this specific orphanage, but she tells me that there are lots of orphanages in Uganda. Children come by the hundreds. Many come alone. They come naked. They come traumatized. They come with great needs. And as I think about these children and what they've experienced, I was reminded of a song that many of us learned as children. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And we can follow our Lord's example to love and care for these children by supporting this mission project. Just think, we can feed one child for one dollar a day and provide for this entire orphanage for one month for just $3,000. Thank you for loving. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for caring. Let's pray. Father, it's so good to be here today, to be with fellow believers, to celebrate you and worship. May our worship be pleasing and glorifying to you. Father, may we have ears to hear your message through your servant, Raymond. And may we live out this message in our daily lives. Father, we've been so blessed with many blessings. May we never take these blessings lightly. But may we be channels of blessing to others, to these children in the orphanage, to their caregivers. Father, we're grateful for missionaries who are willing to leave their comforts, their families, to heed your call, to go to other countries, often experiencing hardship and danger. May you bless them greatly, and may you bless these children and their caregivers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's join together now as we sing at the cross.
Sam, thank you. Uh, many of you know, uh, well, you shouldn't know, maybe you do now, but Warren is out today because he's throwing a surprise birthday party for Trish, his wife, who is now today, well, not today, Tuesday will be 50. Can you believe that? Wednesday. I'm ahead. They're listening online right now, so Trish, happy 50th birthday from all of us here. 50. Wow. Warren worked long and hard to pull that surprise off, and I'm glad that he had that opportunity. Sam, thank you for leading in the second. Uh, Zach, thanks for leading. Megan and Christy, and we have John and Matt uh, and Bob over here. Don't they do a great job? You know, and I... I, uh, I want to thank you guys as a church because I know that you don't like half the music here. Right? Some say you like it all, but I know that there's certain ones you like better. But you know, we, we, we work together as a church and we say that it's not just about me and it's not just about the music that's happening right now or the music that happened way back then. All music connects us to different eras. It connects us to the current, the past, centuries before us and so when we worship we are worshiping not just with those in the room but really connecting with those who have gone before us i applaud you guys thanks for your flexibility can you believe this is the last sunday in the gym maybe (laughs) there's a big rumor that we will be back in the sanctuary next week and so i'm looking forward to that i want to say a great thank you to ann Odell, you did a wonderful job on that testimony, inspiring all of us, reminding us in that orphanage over in Ghana that we can, for a dollar a day, we can provide for a child everything. That's, that's room, board, shelter, education, uh, care, provision. Amazing. For $3,000, we can provide a month's worth of care for 100 orphans. And what really inspired me about Anne's testimony is not only did she do a wonderful job, but if I had asked Anne to do a testimony in front of the church or to run a marathon, she would have picked a marathon every day of the week. She couldn't have been asked to do something more difficult in her life, right? Yeah, but she did it. And I just applaud that attitude in our church, the flexibility that has you guys sitting over the table, over at the tables, drinking coffee, and some of you sitting in black chairs that aren't comfortable, and you greedy people that came early to sit in the nice chairs here. Just... All of us working together to make things work. I'm so thankful for who you are. Happy birthday to Jana. Shout out there. This is her last birthday before she becomes a married woman. Today, turns 29. So happy birthday to you, Jana. And then you have some books that you see there. You have some books over here on this side, really. Uh, These are the books that are going down to the border. They're written in Spanish, the Innkeeper's Journal. And since they're leaving uh, today to head in the direction towards the border, I have a couple of copies. And if you would just pray over those, just pass them all the way across and just voice a prayer. They're going to some of the most impoverished people, people that, that um, live very similar to the ones over in Uganda. And we have an opportunity to share the gospel. This will be one of the most treasured gifts that these families receive for Christmas. And so I'd like for you to pray that the gospel would really make a difference uh, in, the, in the lives of these people. Just take those books, just pray over them quickly, and pass them on uh, down the aisle. Well, today we're going we're gonna, to, oh yeah, and the books went to the senators this week, and they're going to the House of Representatives this next week, by the way. 
So as we continue and wrap up, uh, coming to the concluding parts of John's gospel, the great interruption, we're talking about reactions to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is a centerpiece. We'll find that in the New Testament, it is the absolute centerpiece of all that is preached and taught. It is a foundation for our belief that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God. And that's why Paul would write that in Romans 1.4. He says the resurrection, that's a starting point. You know, many of you, Romans is, is one of your favorite books in the Bible. It talks about the great privilege of liberty in Christ that we have, our salvation through Christ. And he says at the very beginning, if Christ hasn't been resurrected, well, I actually says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that our, our faith is worthless, but by the resurrection, Jesus Christ has proved to us that he is the Son of God. It's the key to our salvation. Later in that same book, Paul would write, when you receive Christ, when you cry out to him as your Lord and Savior, you confess that you acknowledge that he has been raised from the dead. Today's reading in John chapter 11, verse 25, if you're reading through the Bible, you come to that great passage in which Jesus is talking uh, to the sisters of Lazarus, to, 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 to Mary, and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the very resurrection. So we've seen two facts thus far. Fact number one is that Jesus Christ has risen. And that's a fact that we must contend against if we don't believe in Jesus, because all of the evidence is there. The question is, is our heart open to receive the factual evidence that lies before us? Christ has risen. That's a fact. So the second fact is everyone reacts to fact number one. Everyone has a reaction to the fact that Christ has risen. Some, some will react to that fact by saying, I don't believe it's a fact. I don't believe in Jesus. I think he was just a, a good moral teacher, a, a person in history or maybe a fictitious person, or some people to the opposite extreme will fully surrender their life to Christ and say, my reaction to the resurrection of Christ is I fully surrender to him. We saw two reactions last week. One was to be aware of the resurrection, but relatively unchanged. We're going to see more of that today. Remember when John and Peter got to the tomb and they looked in and they saw that it was empty? They saw the grave clothes, which is proof positive that Jesus' body wasn't stolen, but that his body actually resurrected through the grave clothes to a new type of body. And as they looked at that, they were amazed, but they went back relatively unchanged. It was a process. But I use that as an example to say for a lot of people, they're aware that Jesus has been resurrected, but it has very little effect on their day-to-day -day life. The second reaction was by Mary. Remember, Mary went and she had the opportunity to see Jesus face to face, and she was forever changed. She knew that the resurrection had taken place. She saw Christ, and her life was forever changed. And reaction number three that we're going to look at today is fearful and tentative. For some people, they're fearful and tentative. They think about the resurrection, but they're not really sure how that will empower their own life to make a difference. We come to John chapter 20. Let's read it together, that first little section, John chapter 20, beginning at verse 19. It says, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, and be reminded that this is the evening. Jesus was resurrected that morning. He, was, he had demonstrated uh, that he was alive to Mary. She went back and told the disciples. So this is the evening. Later on in the day, the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. See, again, that's that awareness that something has happened, but relatively little change. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace 
be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. A response, a reaction of fearful and tentative. Look down at verse 26. It says, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. We're going to talk about Thomas later, but the doors are still locked out of fear. This is probably the upper room, and the original language helps us to understand, just as we see in the English, that the doors were locked, and Jesus' appearance to them was more frightening than what they feared most. What did they fear most? The guards showing up, the Jewish leaders showing up, and someone trying to arrest them and do to them what they had done to Jesus. They are riddled with fear, even though they know that the grave is empty and Mary has declared with absolute certainty that Jesus Christ has risen. But now they know. The report is circulating from the guards. The guards had gone back. They had bought into this lie with the leaders. They went into cahoots to say that the body was stolen by the disciples and they are fearful of that knock on the door and what it might mean. Isn't it interesting that all through Jesus' ministry, he defied the natural? He walked on water. He took a happy meal and multiplied it into a buffet. He healed the blind. He raised the dead. He caused fish to jump into nets, and he caused fish to get caught with money in their mouth. And here, like the ascension, Jesus' body wasn't limited to the laws of gravity or space or time or density. He simply moves through the locked doors without a key. It reminds us that nothing can hinder Jesus' presence in our lives. You ever feel that way? That you have done something? You've crossed a line? You've said something? You've, something has happened in your life? And Jesus can't find an entry point into your life. And this is a simple reminder that the one who overcame death, for him it's simple child's play to walk through a locked door. It's child's play to come into your life. Jesus gave them what they needed most. What do we need most today? We might say peace, but what we need most is exactly what Jesus gave his disciples himself. Because Jesus is the embodiment of peace. He is the source of peace. And without Jesus, there is no peace. John chapter 14, verse 27, remember Jesus said that I'm going to give you peace, not like the world gives you peace, because we know what it is to have peace. Remember the peace of September 10th, 2001. It was peaceful, and then it disappeared. And we have seen that happen time and time and time again in our lives. But Jesus said, not like the world gives you peace. I give you something completely different. I give you shalom. One of the meanings of shalom, peace, is to be at ease. You ever feel stressed, tense, uptight? 
Shalom is to be relaxed. When Jesus came in, do you notice the very first thing he said to them? Who were these guys? You remember just a few days earlier, they had abandoned him. Peter had denied him. And the very first thing Jesus says when he comes into them is, Shalom, relax. Quit standing like soldiers. My peace, your peace, has been made possible between you and God because of what I have just done and completed. Paul wrote about it in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Is something condemning you right now? If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. They needed to hear that. What would you have said if you had walked through closed doors after being resurrected from the dead and you saw disciples that were disloyal to you, betrayed you, and left you out to dry? I don't think we'd be too interested in hearing him knock on the door. You dirty scoundrels. I walked with you for three years, and this is it? This is it? This is what you have for me? That's fully what they would have expected, and I think that's why Jesus says to them two times, peace be with you. First of all, they realize, peace be with you, because I'm not a ghost, which would have scared the fire out of any of us if we had been there, and all of a sudden, somebody walks through the closed doors. Peace, not boo, but peace be with you. And then after they kind of relax from that, that shalom of, of be at ease, when they relax from that, then it's like, oh yeah, now he's probably getting ready to unload on us about how we all abandoned him. And then he says again, peace be with you. Relax because of what I have done. You can, remember the, the meaning of shalom that we find in the innkeeper's journal, the meaning of shalom is life as God intended and Jesus said, because of what I have done, you can live life as God intends, with victory over sin and death. Some of you need to hear that. There is a sin in your life that you are still being held captive by. And if you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, he has forgiven every last one, past, present, and future. And you can live victoriously over your past, over your present, and even over the future. Well, they were certainly expecting a rebuke, but he got the, they got these gracious, kind words from Christ about what was theirs now, what he had done. And he said, and he said, this peace that I'm giving you, it's peace that is to be shared. Remember going back to when you guys fed the 5,000 men? Remember what we did? I gave you the food, and then you shared it with the crowd. And he said, the peace that I'm giving you, the shalom that I am offering you, is to be shared with other people. How about it, church family? Are we sharing God's peace with other people that they too can know the beauty of being released from condemnation? And Jesus says that I am sending you. You would have thought they were absolute failures. He would have said to them, you abandoned me, so obviously you're not my chosen guys to carry out the mission. I'm going to go with another 12. But instead, he says to those who have failed him like we have failed him, I am sending you. And in the original language, it is written to say that of one of higher rank sending out someone of lower rank with a very special task. And God supernaturally empowers us 
for this task. Look at what it says. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. There is so much controversy around this verse. You can study it more on your own. I don't want to go down the big controversial path. Because what Jesus does is he says, you receive the Holy Spirit. And I believe it's a foretaste of what's going to happen about seven weeks later at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descends and indwells in people. What he was saying is the Holy Spirit is coming within you. You will be supernaturally empowered. Wonderful thing about the Holy Spirit, for all of us that are followers of Jesus Christ, this is ours. The Holy Spirit indwells us. You may want to jot these verses down if you've ever wondered about that. Romans 8, 11, 1 Corinthians 3, 16. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 2 Timothy 1, 14, all of those verses refer to the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells those who follow after Christ. And then before Pentecost, at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Holy Spirit empowers us. So all that God is calling us to do, He empowers us. He indwells us, and He empowers us to do it, and He gifts us to do it. The gifts of the Spirit are listed in, in Romans chapter 4, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and 1 Peter 4, and Ephesians 4. What Jesus is saying to them is he talks about anyone's sins to be forgiven, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. He is not saying that you have the power to forgive. He is say, saying, I am calling you to proclaim what has already been done. That's what it says in the original language. It's to say that it has already been accomplished. So our job, our responsibility as a church is to declare with certainty to the world that we can find forgiveness through Jesus Christ. When Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 18, he explained that those who have Christ, receive Christ, they have life. And those who don't, don't have life. So we can tell people of how they can receive the confidence and the certainty of forgiveness. We have the privilege of giving people assurance. I hope that you have the assurance that if you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, that all of your sins have been forgiven. But we also have the duty and the responsibility as a church to proclaim the danger of unrepentance. For those who don't repent and don't turn to Christ, there is a danger of eternal condemnation. So we proclaim the hope as well as the danger. But here are the disciples as we see their reaction. They're fearful and tentative. Are any of you that way? Maybe not fearful, but maybe we are. Maybe we're fearful of the response we would get from someone else as we seek to intersect spiritual conversations with those we know. Maybe we're tentative. We're not moving forward with great power in our lives. We can, and that's what this passage is about. Well, then there's uncertainty, but openness we find in the, the experience of Thomas here. Listen to what it says. Thomas is also known as Didymus, which means twin. He's one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Those were earmarks to say, unless I can experience and see what killed him has no longer held him by the throes of death, I won't believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them, and the doors were still locked. Jesus came and stood among them again. Peace be with you, third time. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. 
See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas missed church on Sunday, and look what happened. It's just a good warning, right? And notice the attendance for that first Sunday. It's like pandemic attendance, nearly a 20% drop. Thomas isn't there, Judas isn't there, and you don't want to be counted with Judas when you're absent. And Thomas gives a double negative to the disciples that are trying to convince him that the Lord has risen. Double negative, there ain't no way. I will believe unless I see. He's listed as doubting Thomas. Really, all he was asking for is what? The same evidence that the other disciples got back in verse 20. I just want to see, like you guys did. I won't believe until I see. And he says, except, except. It shows his openness to believe. Friends, some of you are doubters. There's nothing wrong with doubting as long as you have an openness to believe. But if you're a skeptic and refuse to believe, no matter how much evidence, that's a danger point. And Thomas said, I won't believe unless, except, and then I might believe. He had to wait until the next Sunday to get to see Jesus. See what happens when you miss on a Sunday? You have to wait till next week to see Jesus. Just a reminder, when you miss, you miss what God decides to do that day or that week. Sometimes, sometimes, God decides to be silent, and that is a part of the Christian experience. We want to show up at church, and we want to be energized by what we sing and what we hear and by a message. We want to be uplifted and inspired in some weeks. It's just flat, and God is there, just reminding us that we walk by faith, not by the emotional energy that we get from an experience. He missed Sunday, and it cost him. Don't miss next Sunday, by the way. And notice what Jesus did. He met Thomas in his doubt. Here we are 2,000 years later still calling him Doubting Thomas. Jesus didn't say to him, Doubting Thomas, put your finger here. He simply called him by his name. Didn't demand that he believe first. Thomas represents all of us who have doubts. Jesus meets us where we are. And he communicates something else very important for us. He wasn't gullible. Have you ever been accused of being gullible as a Christian? Many have. Many believe that, that all of us are gullible because we believe in something like this. Thomas is a representative that Christians aren't gullible. He said, I want the evidence. I want to be able to see. You know, our doubts don't surprise God. Have you ever doubted something about God? Maybe a mass confession. If just at one point in your life, just sometime, maybe years and years and years ago, you doubted God just once. Would you raise your hand just, just once? Okay? It's always intriguing when we have these little quizzes in, in church that how many people never respond. Meaning that about half of you have never doubted in your life. And I celebrate that with you. But for many of us, we doubt. And our doubts don't surprise God. I've had those moments when I pray and I'm, 
I'm fearful to acknowledge something to God because it's like, like he doesn't know. He knows our doubts. Nothing surprises him. Nothing leaves him undone. And so he meets Thomas, and Thomas gives this great confession, which he says, my Lord and my God. He called Jesus God. And not just generically, but he personalized it to say, my Lord, my God. Have you done that? Have you personalized the reality of who Jesus is? Have you made Jesus Christ your Lord and your God? He worshiped him and he affirmed his deity. It's the only time in John's gospel that someone speaking to Jesus called him God. Isn't that interesting? John writes 21 chapters, and this is the only time in all of his gospel that someone referred to Jesus as God. We can call him Doubting Thomas, but he was the last to believe, yes, but he was the first to recognize the implications of Jesus' resurrection and consequently worshiped him and called him Lord and God. Knowing Jesus is God means that we fully surrender our life to him. We give up full control of who we are. It's a willingness to persist in obedience even when we don't want to, even when it doesn't feel good. And we have this bigger blessing. Notice what Jesus said. You've seen and believed, but blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. Have any of you seen Jesus Christ in the flesh? No. I really don't want you to raise your hand on that one if you have. None of us have. But we receive a better blessing than Thomas because we have chosen to believe out of faith without seeing. Reminds us of Hebrews 11.6, which the writer of Hebrews tells us it's impossible to please God without faith. Friends, can we not celebrate today that we have a greater blessing than the disciples themselves because we have chosen to believe in one that we have not seen? And one of the reasons that we come together on Sundays is to remind each other that we're not crazy. When we come together on Sundays, we're reminding each other when we have our doubts, when we have our questions, when we have our concerns, I'm not crazy following after somebody I haven't visibly seen. So, share Jesus with someone this week and give them the opportunity to react with my Lord and my God. That's what John is doing in this gospel. He's writing these stories so the gospel can be shared. Listen to what he said. Again, the, the purpose. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Throughout the gospels, we can identify about three dozen miracles that Jesus performed in his earthly ministry. John uses fewer than a third of those in his gospel. Why? Skeptics won't believe no matter how much evidence you give them. We've all had experiences of talking to someone, and every piece of evidence that we give, every conversation that moves in a logical direction is just detoured to something else. That's why Jesus didn't present himself as the risen Lord to those who crucified him. Because they wouldn't believe. In John chapter 11, verse 47, the Sanhedrin acknowledged that Jesus had performed many 
miraculous signs, but they refused to believe in Him. And John connects the resurrection to his purpose of why he's writing, because without the resurrection, there is no gospel. There is no good news. That's what the gospel means. And if Jesus hasn't been resurrected, Paul was right, then it's absolutely worthless. But if he has, it means absolutely everything. His purpose in writing, and I, I really wrestle with this phrase because we use it all the time, his purpose in writing is not academic. Have you ever used that phrase? It's not academic. What is academic? You go someplace, you learn stuff that's not helpful or useful or applicable. It really is academic. He's writing so that the truth will be exposed and people will believe in the truth and their lives will be forever changed. So he wants to interrupt us. To say, I don't know what you've thought about Jesus in the past, but I'm hoping to provoke you to believe that Jesus truly is God's Son and your life will be forever changed. And that you will share that with other people. Thomas did. Tradition tells us that Thomas left from Jerusalem and he went to India. And I will tell you from experience, India is a long, long way. 2,800 miles from where he was without an airplane, without the convenience of cars, transportation as we know it. Thomas went 2,800 miles, the distance from one side of the United States to the other, to share the gospel in a place that had not heard in India. And I guarantee you that if you walk 2,800 miles somewhere, you're probably not going to turn around and walk back. He stayed there. And tradition tells us that he died there, a martyr for his faith, because he was so convinced in what he saw. And I pray that as, Paul, as John writes here, that they will believe. That means to have an ongoing, increasing belief. Is your belief ongoing? Probably. For many of us as Christians, it continues on. We believe. But that word also means to increase. Is your belief in God increasing? It could be that, that maybe we haven't asked God to do something so supernatural that it doesn't, we don't depend upon Him. Is our belief in God increasing as we continue to age through life? Well, this morning we have the opportunity to participate in the Lord's Supper, to be a part of that experience. And I want to share with you that as a Christian, you're more than welcome to join us, even if you're not a member of Westgate. If you follow Christ as your Lord and Savior and been baptized as a demonstration of that, we invite you to come. If you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, we always say that is the greatest need of your life. We long for you to become like Thomas, in which you cry out and say, my Lord and my God, personally. Because God loves you, and He's created you to have a personal relationship with Him. But because of our sin, we are separated from God. We are on the outside of locked doors that cannot be penetrated. But Jesus came to create this pathway to God where we can have a relationship. And all we have to do is to repent of our sins and completely surrender our life to Jesus Christ. So I'd like to lead us in a prayer. And if you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is the starting point. This is not the end all. This is kind of like saying your, your wedding vows on the altar. It's not the end of your marriage. It's the beginning of it. It's a prayer to receive Christ and begin a relationship with Him. And for those of us as Christians, as we take a moment to pray before we receive the Lord's Supper, would you pray and say, God, would you help my faith, my belief, to not only be ongoing, but increasing? Let me call out and ask you to do something that maybe I've never seen you do before. So let's pray. 
God, thanks for my friends that are so faithful to follow after you, to seek you with all their heart, soul, and mind. May they be encouraged today as we come to this last gathering in the gym, reflecting their hunger to be together no matter where we are. We celebrate that. Help us, O Lord, as Christians to to have that ongoing belief that is ever-increasing, always moving forward. As we celebrate this Lord's Supper, I pray that that would be a part of our prayer and part of our celebration, that you have liberated us from all the condemnation of sin. You've opened up an opportunity for us to have a relationship with you. We would live victoriously, like like your word tells, like Thomas demonstrates, like the other disciples as well. Lord, there may be some here today that have never received Christ. And hopefully they have come to the point, as John's gospel directs, they've come to the point where they realize they need Christ more than anything else. And I pray if they find themselves in that position that right now, they would pray a prayer similar to this, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sins and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have. And I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. God, you are so good to us. May we be reminded of that as we participate in the remembrance of what you have done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Deacons, would you make your way to the front? Everybody else, let's just all begin to pray and focus our hearts on God to celebrate that we worship a risen Christ who has liberated us from the power and the penalty of sin.
may want to go ahead as the deacons complete the process of sharing the elements. Go ahead and just carefully take that the juice off the top so you can get to the the wafer. You've got to go ahead. You know, we think about these elements and the way that the Lord's Supper is prepared. It's to be done in community, not individually. And that's why Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, because they were not practicing it appropriately. So we wanted to give them direction and guidance. We do this together as a reminder that we, that we serve a risen Lord. And we encourage each other by this. We celebrate what Christ has done for us. Paul said that he received from the Lord what had also been passed, he also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ on the night that he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. says in the same way after the supper he took the cup and he said this cup is a new covenant in my blood do this whenever you think of it whenever you drink it do this in remembrance of me let's stand together and worship for just a moment then and I will have a closing benediction for us after this song so after this song you be seated but let's stand together as we worship
My mic explained that I'm supposed to be done. But I have just a couple things, and, and uh, my apologies to the deacon that was supposed to lead us in the prayer. Uh, my cup got stuck, and the pages in the Bible got stuck, and so I overlooked the prayer for the Lord's Supper. Who was that, David? Jerry, we'd like for you to close us in prayer in just a moment. Where's Jerry? I am really sorry, my friend. I just get distracted sometimes, as you can tell. Well, uh, if you were playing basketball, you notice some of, some of you spent the entire time in here wondering what the basketball goal represented being down uh, today. Uh, if you were playing basketball and you had a group of people up against the wall that you were going to pick uh, to be on your team, uh, would you go with a guy that had missed 9,000 shots and lost 300 times? Probably not. But if you did decide to take a chance on somebody like that, you'd be picking Michael Jordan to be on your team. Would you rather be Michael Jordan or a spectator watching Michael Jordan? Probably Michael Jordan, right? Because there is something more exciting about being a participant than a spectator. You would much rather take the winning shot than to watch it. Even if you're a Baylor fan, you, you loved watching that. But it's more exciting being out on the field. And so as, as we move into this next era of our church, God has really revealed some exciting things back here in the gym. Don't you agree? Maybe I'm the only one. Okay. I mean, I think some really neat things have happened back here. And as we move back into the sanctuary, one of the things that I would like for you to carry with you to the sanctuary is a new resolve to be fully engaged. The pandemic may not be over. There may be more surges coming, and we will have to address that. I understand that. But let's not let that be an excuse for disengagement. Let's look for ways, every last one of us, to be engaged completely, doing whatever it takes to fulfill what Christ has done. That's, you thought I was going to shoot. 
That's taking the shot rather than watching someone else take it. So, Jerry, would you come and lead us in a prayer, and then I want to pray this benediction. I want to give this benediction for us. Father, thank you for your love, for your many blessings. Thank you for this church and what it means to each of us. And, Father, as a church, help us continue to reach out to those in this community that may not know you. And, Father, today as we partake in the Lord's Supper, we did so in remembrance of you. You gave your only begotten Son that we may have everlasting life. Thank you for your salvation through Jesus Christ. Continue the strength of each of us as we go about our daily lives. And thank you for our church again. And we look forward to moving back into the auditorium. Thank you. It's these things in our name. Amen. Thank you, Jerry. And now, would you stand together for what we believe to be the last time in the gym? And if you want to grab hold of the person next to you by their hand, that's fine. And if you don't want to, that's fine too. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you, through the power of Jesus Christ, all that is pleasing to him. Amen and amen.